This is a light a candle meeting, which takes its name from the proverb, it is better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. Through shared experience, strength, and hope, we seek to shine a light through the darkness of our illness onto the spiritual path to recovery. Step one states, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives have become unmanageable. Am I really willing to admit I'm powerless? I doubt my life is truly unmanageable. The AA 12 and 12 describes our disease as a rapacious creditor, and it will continue to be aggressively greedy and grasp at us until we are bankrupt. Really? My life's not that bad. I have a job, a family, a home. I have a life. But am I really living? Am I feeling alive inside and out? Am I sharing my meaning and purpose with those around me? Do I have passion for life, or am I just barely holding on? Am I always waiting for the other shoe to drop, or am I often agitated and on edge? There are, uh, there are signs our lives are unmanageable, hallmarks, if you will. Please join us as we welcome Melissa C. and hear how she simply and clearly breaks down the hallmarks of an unmanageable life and what it means to be powerless. Have your big book, pen, and paper in hand while she walks us through step one this afternoon. It, Lori, that was beautiful. Thank you. That was really, um, that was a great uh, intro. Um, thank you. Yeah, my name is Melissa C. I am a recovered compulsive overeater, and um, I live in New York in the Hudson Valley region. Um, and um, uh, yeah, thank you. So I, um, I sent Amy like right when we were starting. I sent her a picture of myself because. Um, you know, if you've never heard me speak before, um, you might not have an indication um, that I have a seat here. So this is this is me. This was me um, about I think about 11 years ago. And um, so I. Um, yeah, that that's that's where this disease had me. And you don't see the rest of my body in this disease, but you can certainly get a sense from seeing my face and my upper body. Um, I was morbidly obese, and I was living in a state of utter powerlessness and unmanageability. And um, so that's what I'm going to talk about. And Amy, perfect, perfect timing. Um, so first I want to um, describe, without going into my whole Story. I'm happy at any point, any time at all, anybody wants to hear my whole story, I'll share it. But I'll try to weave it through as I discuss powerlessness and unmanageability. Um, so definition of powerless, right? Devoid of strength or resources. And two, lacking the authority or capacity to act. So I simply do not have the strength or the resources needed to control my food addiction. And I lack the authority to act in ways in which are in agreement with my own knowledge, right? I can't act in agreement with what I know. I'm powerless, right? So powerless for me means that I have an allergy of the body, which demands that if I begin to eat certain foods or engage in certain food behaviors, I set off a craving. And this is different from how normal people experience a craving. So 
In the doctor's opinion, it, it states um, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So average temperate eaters um, can overeat sometimes, right? But they don't continue to overeat once they're truly full. And this explains why I could not eat two cookies or one individual size bag of M&Ms. And my siblings always could, right? And other people always could. Um, or they could have one piece of cake and leave some of the frosting left on their plate, right? Um, I have no ability to do that. I am completely powerless to do that. Normal people receive satisfaction from normal size portions. They actually receive satisfaction from food. Um, and normal people eat, and with each bite, the desire for more gets diminished, right? Every time they take another bite, their desire decreases. And um, But when I eat, the desire for more, it increases. That's what it means to have an allergy. And I have no control over that. I am powerless to that. I didn't cause it. And there's nothing I can do about it. And this tells me I can never treat food the way most normal people can. If, you know, and I love, I heard it described like this. If I'm thirsty, right, I'm really thirsty and I pour myself a nice glass of ice water and I begin to drink it, I don't need to call upon any willpower to finish the, you know, to keep me from finishing the glass of water. If I drink a glass of water and my thirst gets quenched, I'm good. I don't need to like exercise any, I don't need to work a program. I don't need to do anything. I just put the glass down and I'm done. And that's the way normal people experience food. They just get satisfied and they're finished. But I have a very specific and a very severe allergy. And for me, it occurs when I eat very specific foods. And it also occurs when I eat in very specific ways. Um, and this allergy was something I didn't understand and I did not want to accept for a very long time. And, and that's why step one is crucial, because unless you fully accept it, Unless I fully accepted that, I was going to spend the rest of my life in agony. Um, you know, all the world talks about moderation and portion control. And this idea that if I, oh, here's one, right? This idea that if I deny myself something entirely, then I'm setting myself up for one day I'm just going to blow, right? And so that would mean that the reason I binged was because I denied myself food for so long, right? And I wanted more than anything to believe that. Um, it seems so logical, of course, just have everything in, you know, do everything in moderation, everything in moderation. Um, and so because I believed that, I tried all sorts of diet programs that promised me that, you know, um, and so I tried like Weight Watchers. That was my favorite one I did and other diet programs that promised to re-educate me. They were going to re-educate me and teach me how to eat moderately. And like I know that I exhausted this method and I consistently would try it again and again and again. And but here's what I did at Weight Watchers. And if you've done this, you know, um, maybe you'll relate. The first two weeks or three weeks, they, they had a specific plan, which pretty much was 
devoid of all my alcoholic foods. So I did really well those first two or three weeks. And um, so I lost weight in the beginning and I lost it really fast. Um, and then they would offer this like points option or flex option, right? And so that next week I didn't fare so well because I was, I was like re-ingesting all my alcoholic stuff. And what I would do is I would binge in the beginning of the week and then I knew I had to face the scale. So I would starve at the end of the week and, um, and I could do that, right? For a little bit until I actually couldn't because I'm powerless and my allergy is really strong. Um, and so over time I wasn't, I wasn't losing any weight. Um, and then, um, you know, the next weeks I would start, I would be binging and starving. I would be binging most of the week and starving maybe one day if I could. And then I just stopped going. Right. And, um, so that's my experience with portion control and moderation, and yet I'm stubborn, so I do it repeatedly. I did it repeatedly over and over and over again. Um, and what I've learned from my painful experience is that every single diet works. Every single diet works perfectly. They do exactly what they're meant to do. If you limit your caloric intake and you follow their plan, they are effective for weight loss. So they work until the day they no longer work. And then they never work the same for me again. It's like, um, I've explained this before to people that I think my disease is almost like one of my dogs, right? Once it knows how to get out of the fence in the yard, I can't put it back in that yard. I'd have to find a new, a new strategy. But I keep trying to put that thing back in the same fenced yard. Um, and then I blame myself for not being good, right? I can't do it. Um, you know, I've also learned that I have a very sensitive food allergy and that eating my allergic substances in any form at all was setting me up for that craving. And um, so I was taught something that I know now was inaccurate and harmful, right? I was taught that if I, I can look to see if a certain substance was listed on a label um, after the fifth ingredient, then it was okay. And, and I'm not here to tell anybody else their disease. I'm just going to share some light on mine. Um, that I also was, was told you're being very rigid. And, um, you know, if it's in like seasoning or like a marinade or something like that, um, that that doesn't really count. <laughs> that doesn't count. Um, and that's not the truth for me. You know, in any form at all means in any form at all. Uh, you know, my disease loves ambiguity. It loves uh, like a little a little that gate. It loves to know where the hole is in the gate in the fence so it can sneak in. You know, and so it seems reasonable that knowing right. So knowing I have an allergy should be enough to keep me from eating those foods, right? So if I know that I can't stop eating once I start, then clearly the solution would be just don't start, right? Don't trigger the allergy. And that sounds quite reasonable and sane. Um, if you're allergic to something, then you just don't go near it. And But I have a much bigger problem than just an allergy. 
what I suffer from is a mental condition that convinces me that I don't have this allergy, right? Um, it tells me that I'm making too big a deal out of something. And if you think about the second part of powerlessness, that other part of the definition, powerless means lacking the authority or the capacity to act, right? So my greatest problem is that I don't have the capacity to act in ways which respect my own knowledge. I act in ways that are harmful to my own well-being. I have what is called the mental twist. Um, my mind twists and decides that I'm making too big a deal out of this problem or that this time I will be able to handle the food. You know, it locks in on the idea and then it has no power but to act that idea out. And so this is what it means to have an unmanageable problem. I am unable to manage having a serious allergy. That's my real problem. And it really is the crux of my problem. Powerless over food, not as big a problem. Unmanageable, huge problem. Um, so, so here's my definition, right? Here's what unmanageable. If you can manage, here's the definition of manage, to be in charge, to be able to supervise, administer and regulate, handle, maintain control, succeed in surviving or attaining one's aims or to cope, right? Those are seven definitions of manage. And I could be done right now because <laughs> I failed at all that, right? Um, so when we talk about unmanageability, what happens is people often go right to the bedevilments. And, you know, if you want to know what the bedevilments are, they're in um, the chapter We Agnostics on page 52. And it says, we're having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. So the bedevilments, and, and, um, and Lori mentioned it, right, are the consequences of unmanageability. They're the evidence of an unmanaged life. And, you know, there's a world of misunderstanding surrounding this word, I think. People often point out the things in their life that are manageable. You know, there's confusion and offensive kind of posturing. And I know I had it myself, pointing out what's still working. Don't tell me I'm unmanageable. I still have a job, right? I pay my mortgage on time. Um, my kids are doing okay, right? We've got clean clothes to wear. I'm, I'm not unmanageable. Um, you know, and I also think there's a danger, and I think I do it myself, when I carry the message and I focus too much on the consequences. Because, you know, and, that, and we often tell our story that way. Um, we tell about our craziness. 
And we talk about like how heavy we got or the crazy diets we tried, the lengths we went to. And the problem is, is that if you're not that bad, right, you might think, oh, it's not so serious for me. Um, or, or if your horror story is worse, right, if you've gone to greater lengths than maybe I have or someone else has, you, you think, oh, geez, no, I'm, I'm so much worse than that and this won't work for me. Right. So we, I think sometimes I have to be careful when I focus too much on the um, evidence of unmanageability. It might help more to really just break down what is unmanageability. So, you know, even though I was always able to hold a job and pay my bills, um, I was still suffering from a state of unmanageability. And, you know, if you're waiting right until all aspects of your life tank, and circle the drain, um, my experience is they probably will, right? They probably will um, because this disease progresses. And so anything that I said, oh, I'll never do that, I came to do, right? Um, and I, I say, like, if you haven't done that, you might want to add the word yet to that statement because it's yet, um, you know? And so if I want to, like, focus on that, I can, but you know, on the other hand, unmanageable could solely refer to the fact that I cannot manage the most basic function of all. I cannot manage the amount of food I eat, right? You don't get more basic than that. Um, and, you know, and I would say, well, it's because I have an allergy. That's why, you know, but many people have allergies to food and they're not unmanageable, right? We don't need Shellfish Anonymous. They just don't need it. Um, you know, what really makes me unmanageable is that I cannot seem to manage keeping away from foods and eating behaviors that I know in my head I'm allergic to. So, you know, if you're manageable, right, it means that you can rely on certain tools, systems, practices, and methods to keep things running well. That's what it means to be able to manage something. And that the methods consistently keep the behaviors, the structures, and um, business or whatever it is operating well, right? You have these management strategies, and they work pretty well. And, and I'm, you know, I'm a teacher by occupation. That's what I do for a living, and we talk a lot about effective classroom management. It's like a very big, it's always like what you work on. Um, especially with new teachers, that's like all the focus in the world. And I've had an opportunity. I mentor a lot of teachers. I've mentored a number of teachers. And um, and I've worked with student teachers. And if you're working with them, you know, you want to assist them in becoming effective. And so you talk about management. And we would look, as evidence, we look at how her students are doing, right, or how his students are doing to see, is she managing? And if it's not going well, we tweak some methods. Right. Um, and I've been teaching like 24 years. Like I have like a ton of them. And eventually you rest on a few that really work for a particular group of kids. And like, great. OK, that works. Um, and, um, you know, and because why? Because the students are manageable, even unruly kids. Eventually you figure it out. Um, but in my experience, has shown me that I am unable to manage my disease of compulsive eating can't apply the same kind of ideas um, no matter what 
methods I've used, they simply are not consistently effective. Um, and I'm extraordinarily stubborn. So I have exhausted many, many, many strategies of management because admission of powerlessness and unmanageability is like, it seems um, humiliating. It's like every fiber in my body screamed out against doing that. So, you know, in, in the doctor's opinion in the big book, it says we're of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. You know, and, and, a, the, and the big book does an excellent job highlighting this. And my talk really from this point, um, because the greater problem is the unmanageability, is going to delve in a little more in the text about all the methods that I cannot use to manage my disease. And I have a list. I've done a, a special edition. I have a list of 26 things that I've used um, and tried. And by the way, none of those methods include diets. Like, like if you add diets to the list, it's, it's like it multiplies. Um, so I, you know, what's, what's the point of creating a list then? Like why? Because the objective is to snuff out the thought that you can still do this job alone, right? Um, and that's the second part of step one that's necessary to drive us out of the delusion that we can solve our own problems. That's a delusion. Um, and Bill's story on, on uh, page five, it says shortly afterwards, I came home drunk. There'd been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder. For such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. So in this short paragraph, I've already got four management strategies that I've tried. Four things I've tried to manage my disease. Fighting, resolve, my mind, and having perspective, right? So fighting this disease has looked like getting really serious. I'm going to get really serious about the severity of my problem. I gather up all my, you know, arsenal of diet strategies, and I'm going to come at it from this angle that I can beat this. I got it. I know what to do. Um, but the fight always results in me losing. I cannot fight this. I don't have the energy to sustain the fight for too long. Um, and resolve, that word just, it tells me that I'm going to be re-solving it, right? And re means doing it again. So if it's a problem and I've solved it, why do I need to do it again, right? Because I can't, because it never works for the long haul. You know, the problem I have also with making up my mind is that my, man, my mind can't consistently remain made up. Right. My mind does not stay made up. Um, it often feels like I just changed my mind. Right. I would just, um, I don't know, change the day that I was going to start. You know, I have like a start date. The day comes and I decide I'm not really going to start that date. After all, it's not really a good date. Right. Um, 
you know, I'd make up my mind that I'll do it after the weekend, after the holidays, after my birthday, after it's always after something. Um, and perspective, right? The way of looking at this. I couldn't fairly assess the seriousness of this problem in the moments when I needed to understand just how critical the nature of my problem really is. I have great perspective, except when I need to call upon it, except for in that moment when I need to have perspective, I don't have it. Um, I always have it after I would succumb to the desire. After I would eat, then suddenly I would have great perspective. But in the midst of the situation, I can't appreciate the seriousness of it. Um, in Bill's story, it goes on to say on page eight, trembling, I stepped from the hospital, a broken man. Beer. There's another one, soaked me up for a bit. And then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. So fear, I can't use fear <laughs> to manage this problem either because I've been terrified. You know, I received a diagnosis um, in my early 40s that my blood pressure was dangerously high. And my doctor told me that I wasn't going to live to the CD end of my 40s, right? And when I was warned that the enamel on my teeth were wearing down from all my gum chewing. Um, you would think that would sober me up for a bit, but actually fear never sobered me up. In fact, the more fearful I was, the more I needed to eat, the more I felt like I needed food. Um, you know, it, in, in There's a Solution on page 22, it says, we know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens, both in the bodily and mental sense, and makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. And then it says these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind, not in his body. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. They sound like the philosophy of the man who, having had a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning at the attention of the alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. Once in a while, he may tell the truth. And strange to say is usually that he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. And um, so what that tells me from what I read is I uh, can't use reasoning, talking, talking this problem through, or the truth. Can't use those. You know, my own experience was that any reason when I can apply, I can apply reasoning. I can reason myself right into doing whatever it is I want to do. Um, you know, and I would give wonderful reasons 
for picking up the food. You know, from being, my dad died, right? It's reasonable. I want to eat. Um, to it being a birthday celebration. Um, but there's really no real reason that could explain why I would knowingly cause myself to eat what I know is, uh, you know, deadly to me, right? No earthly reason. Um, and you couldn't talk me through the problem. Not a therapist or a friend or a lecture. Um, and certainly I couldn't even differentiate the truth from the false. So I can't even talk about what's true because I don't know what's true. Um, you know, what my alcoholic life seems perfectly normal. That seems the truth for me. Um, in the chapter, there's a solution on page 24. It says the fact is that for most alcoholics, reasons yet obscure, we've lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. So I can't apply choice willpower, memory, suffering, or humiliation. Those don't work. And I've never just been able to make better food choices. You know, I remember hearing that. I need to make better choices. But my powerlessness renders me without the power of choice. I can't make better choices. It's like the pull of a powerful magnet you know, to like little iron scraps, right? I'm unable to remain free from that pull. I don't have the power. Any more than those little scraps of iron having the powerful pull of the magnet. It's just no defense. You know, and um, as for willpower, I have used every bit of willpower I've ever had. And at best, it's temporarily effective. And not only temporarily effective, but it's completely unreliable. You know, it, it, I say like it has an expiration date and the most dangerous part of all about willpower's expiration date is I don't know when it's running out. Just suddenly it has, you know, and you think like expiration date on like that gallon of milk in the, in the refrigerator. You know that the expiration date isn't until three days from now, but you open up the fridge and you just, nope, it expired yesterday, gone. And that's what it is for me and my willpower. I cannot call upon it with any reliability. Um, and as for memory, I have a great memory for all sorts of things, but where food is concerned, I have a form of food senility. You know, the memory of the pain that it causes me uh, is not accessible at the times when I need to call upon it. And, um, you know, an example that I give to people is, um, you know, I have a commute that I take to work and I know where the police, I know that little spot. Um, and I don't even have to get pulled over by the police, but I've seen that they're there. So as I approach that part in the highway, I can call upon my memory. And I slow down, right? 
Um, and I can't do that where food is concerned. Can't seem to remember. Um, you know, and pain and humiliation. I've suffered and been humiliated by, by this disease. Um, physical suffering, right? I broke my foot due to being overweight and over-exercising. And then after getting a cortisone injection, um, I broke it again, right? Um, because uh, I ignored the doctor's warnings about needing to let it heal, you know, before exercising again. So pain didn't work. It, it was extraordinarily painful, and I just broke it again. And, you know, if you think humiliation might work, um, my experience is that in my high school years, I gained 100 pounds between my freshman year and my senior year of high school. Um, and so there's probably little things else that's more humiliating than that happening to a young teen, right? Didn't work, didn't work. In fact, it's so ineffective that I, you know, I regained 100 pounds um, in my first few years of marriage. And that's pretty humiliating too. Um, in the chapter more about alcoholism, page 30, it says we're convinced that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of progressive illness over any considerable period. We get worse, never better. So um, considerable periods. Time is not a management strategy either. Time does not give me the ability to manage this. Because I've had some considerable periods of time without food. And anybody else who is sitting here who has had periods of abstinence, you're no more better equipped just by having time. Time does not give you the ability to manage it. Um, you know, I left sugar alone for a number of years, put it down for a number of years. And when I picked it up, it was like I had never put it down. In fact, it was as bad that day than it had ever been and worse. And um, what's worse, what's like more horrendous is that I was certain when I picked it up that I was going to be able to put it down and I couldn't. I just couldn't. Um, you know, in, in the chapter more about alcoholism, on page 32 to 33, it talks about the man of 30. And, um, you know, he um, put it down and picked it up, right? And he fell victim to a belief, which practically every alcoholic has, that long periods of sobriety and self-discipline, right, gave him the ability to drink like other people. And I definitely had that thought where food was concerned. I thought, okay, I've refrained from a very long time. Now I will be able to eat it in ways that are controllable, you know. Um, and I thought, okay, I've got self-discipline now, and I can regulate it because he says he tried to regulate his drinking. Um, and then he gathered all his forces. So I thought, okay, let me use some force. And he even tried solving it with lots of money. <laughs> and all of that was at his disposal and every attempt failed. So I can't use self-discipline. I can't regulate it. I can't apply force. And I have thrown 
millions of dollars probably at this problem, millions of dollars. You know, I've got really good self-discipline in other areas, work mostly, right? I'm, I'm a really good worker. Um, I've always been academically successful, um, you know, and I could apply self-discipline in that area. You know, when I went back to school and got my master's, um, I was really disciplined. I knew when to study. I said no to certain events. I had everything mapped out. Um, I can't apply it where food is concerned. Can't use my, can't use self-discipline. Um, and um, no amount of money, no amount of money I spent. In fact, when I think about all the schemes that I tried, all my weight loss schemes, um, how many industries profited over my misery? Um, you know, in, in my senior year of high school, my parents lovingly spent thousands of dollars for a medically supervised fasting kind of a program. Um, and it was through a hospital. It was medically monitored. And um, my, my parents' insurance plan didn't cover it. And they paid for it out of pocket. Um, and it worked until it didn't work, right? Um, and, um, you know, and my crazy thinking is, even as an adult for a very long time, I thought the more expensive it was, the more extreme and bizarre sounding it was, the more likely it's going to work. You know, it, it was like, well, it has to work. It's expensive. It has to work. It costs a lot of money. It has to work because it's crazy. It's going to work because it's crazy. Um, yeah, that's insane. That Talk about insanity. Of course that's insane. Um, on page 36, you know, we get the story of Jim that suddenly, right, the thought crosses his mind that if he's going to put an ounce of whiskey in his milk, it won't hurt him because he's got a full stomach. And he ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk, right? And then he's like, hmm, I'm not being so smart. But he thought, hmm, this might work. And, hey, it works so well that he did it again and again and again. He ordered another whiskey with more milk. Um, and that didn't seem to bother him, so he did another one. And he had a lot of knowledge. It says he had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside for the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if he only mixed it with milk. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call it plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion or the ability to think straight be called anything else? So knowledge about myself, can't use that. Can't do it about with self-knowledge proportion nope can't use the proportion or the ability to think can't rely upon the ability to think and um i know a lot about myself i've got a lot of self-knowledge um therapy digging deep getting to know me having knowledge and applying that knowledge are two totally different things right i have all the knowledge in the world i can't apply it um and um, proportion, right? If you have proportion, it means you're able to put things in the right perspective. Um, 
meaning I know what's important and what's not important. And um, what could be more important than my health, right? What in the world could be more important than my health? And when I made decisions, like I would just decide what I eat when I got to the party, right, rather than asking the hostess or maybe bringing my own food, right, because um, I didn't want to insult the hostess. I didn't want to stand out. That shows a lack of proportion. That shows that I don't really know what's really crucially important. What could be, right, if I went to, um, if my kids had a deadly peanut allergy and I had the ability to, to live in proportion, to know what's important, um, I wouldn't walk to, into someone's house and expect the food on their table to be okay for my kids if they had a deadly peanut allergy. I would have enough love and care to call the hostess ahead, and I wouldn't worry if I was offending them. Wouldn't matter. And if I didn't think they took it seriously, I would just, I would take care of it myself, right? But I don't have that ability when it comes to me and my food. I, I can't seem to do that for food um, or myself. You know, um, that shows a lack of proportion. If I'm incapable of thinking at times, you know, in relation to my disease of compulsive overeating, what's good for me, then I don't have proportion. Um, on page 39, it says the actual or potential alcoholic, with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. There is a point we wish to emphasize, re-emphasize, and smash home upon our alcoholic readers as it has been revealed to us out of bitter experience, right? And so I listed it before that self-knowledge, but I really, I want to, um, I want to kind of zone in on that because that was a, a mistake that I thought for a long time. Self-knowledge. If I know enough about myself, I won't continue to do this, right? Um, and so I, you know, I've, and I've heard lots of people, well-meaning, you know, um, examine their birth order. They're going to talk about, you know, where they were the first child, the middle child, the last child, and, and examine that closely. They're going to talk about their abusive childhoods, their issues of self-loathing, as well as other difficulties. And, and those things may very well be problematic. And I don't mean to minimize anybody's painful experiences of growing up. Um, but merely identifying them in an attempt to know myself better, right, is not enough or even related to having a psychic change. I could know myself as much as I want. I can give all the reasons why I am the way I am, and it still does not give me the required power. It still does not give me the ability to manage this. Um, or, or even just identifying then I'm a compulsive overeater, right? Even knowing that is not enough. So, you know, it's kind of like um, going to the doctor and getting the knowledge that you have strep throat and then expecting that now that you know this, your throat is no longer going to hurt. It's going to get better because I know it. That's what it means to have self-knowledge, right, as far as this program is concerned. Um and that's the mistake I made with my food addiction over and over. I thought if I knew it, I can act 
in ways that would, you know, live within the boundaries of what I know. Um, and on page 41 to 42, it talks about Fred. And, um, and he thought, oh, as soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington, right? He, he drank when everything was great. He picked up and he drank. Um, and so I, and I eat when everything is going beautifully, I eat. Um, and he says, not only had I been off guard, I'd made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time, I had not thought of the consequences at all. I had commenced to drink as careless, as though the cocktails were ginger ale. And I now remembered what my alcoholic um, friends had told me, how they had prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come, I would drink again. Now, though I did raise a defense, it would one day give way to some trivial reason for having a drink. And um, that just, that exactly same thing happened to him, he said. And he knew from that moment that he had an alcohol. And he saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. That's unmanageable. Having a mental blank spot is what's unmanageable. Um, and, um, and for him, it was a crushing blow, right? So I can't stay on guard. He talked about staying on guard. And I can't apply consequences or remain defense, have a defense, right? And so here's the problem with staying on guard, right? Here's the biggest problem with staying on guard is who's the guard? Me. I'm the guard. And I'm the biggest danger. You know, and I've certainly um, experienced consequences of compulsive eating, right? Weight gain, high blood pressure, no clothes fitting, sleep apnea, digestive difficulties, you know, worn out enamel on my teeth, painful joints. Like, I know that consequences um, are extremely effective ways that behavior can be managed, right? And I know, like I said in the beginning, I'm a teacher, right? We love, like, punishments, rewards, you know, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement. Um, those are consequences. Um, they don't work for this. Consequences don't work where this is concerned. Um, defense, right? Defense means to resist attack. And for me, the food always one cannot resist that attack. It's cunning, it's baffling, and it's powerful. You know, it seems sweet and harmless. It's the wolf in sheep's clothing. I can't fight something that doesn't show up like an enemy, right? And and that's that's how it's always been with me in the food. It doesn't show up like a big enemy. It rarely starts with a cupcake for me. That is not how my disease would get in. You know, rather, it would be sloppy measurement, right? It's an extra serving. It's a food that mm, could be safe because it sounds healthy or harmless, you know, but you know in your heart of hearts it's really not. You know, so defense is ineffective because, like, how do you defend yourself against a bunny rabbit? Right. It looks like it's sweet and and fluffy and, and kind. Right. 
And like, why would you? Um, you know, in the chapter working with others, it talks about on page 101 that in our belief, any scheme of combating alcoholism, which proposes to shield the sick man from temptation is doomed to failure. If the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a time, but he usually winds up with a bigger explosion than ever. We have tried these methods. These attempts to do the impossible have always failed. So combats, right? That's more fighting and shields. And anything that I'm attempting to fight, you know, combat that I'm doing, it means that it's really controlling me. I can't fight. Fighting means that it is actually in control of me. I have no peace when I'm fighting. Um, and as for shields, right, here's the thing. I simply remove the shield or avoid the shield, but not what's being shielded. Um, so in the past, here's what I would do to shield myself. I would tell my family, I'd make them in charge. That's it. No more. No more blank in the house. Can't have this in the house anymore, guys. Um, and I would demand that it would be eaten away from my sight. Can't eat that in front of me. Um, I threw things out that weren't mine, right? You can't have that in this house. Um, or I would tell my husband, I, I would say, like, don't let me eat whatever it was. Don't let me eat that, right? And then what would happen is I would go out and eat it in my secret sorted places. Like, I would eat it in the car in the bathroom, et cetera. Or I would just suddenly buy it. And those items I just threw out like two days before, now I'm buying it. And um, and I would expect my family to ignore the demands I put on them just the day or so before. Now they have to ignore what I said. And not only do they have to ignore it, they have to pretend that I never said it. Don't you dare remind me of it. Like, I'm telling them in the moment, don't let me eat this. And then when they go to do it, I'm mad at them. I'm, I'm angry at them. And um, I make, we make the people we live with crazy. You know, it's, it's um, and no wonder why people gave me a hard time when I got abstinent. Like, you know, even still, right, my husband will still say sometimes, like, you really won't have this chicken breast because the marinade had sugar in it. Like, come on. It was so little, right? Or, you know, Melissa, it's the last ingredient. I really didn't put anything. I put, like, hardly anything in it. Um, you know, and I don't get angry with him anymore for questioning him. Um, he's not responsible for what I eat. I am. It's my responsibility. And how could I expect that just because, like, the last, you know, it's been 10 years that I've really been working this program, but really six and a half years, seven years now, that I finally got serious about the severity of my disease. And so he should now erase 25 years of what it was like before with me. And um, that's not his manage. That's not his problem. It's my problem. It's my problem. You know, I, I tried to manage this disease with shields, and it was ineffective. It actually caused difficulties in, my, in the people's lives around me. Um, in, in how it works on page 60, it really here's like the real, the end pretty much. It says, um, our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. 
A, we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God could and would if he were sought. So today I know I'm powerless. I know I'm powerless over the allergy and I'm not equipped to manage this allergy. I'm not equipped to manage my disease and certainly not my life. And, you know, and no, absolutely no human could fix me. But the beautiful thing is, is that my higher power, God, could and would, right, and has, so long as I continue to seek, right? And so the important thing with step one, and I'm just going to end there, is that um, in order for me to seek God with the intensity that this requires, I had to know that I had no other options left, right? That's why step one is crucial. That's why we have to know that we are powerless. I am powerless. I am without defense. And I'm unmanageable. I can't seem to manage this problem, right? And so if I know that and I fully accept that, then that readies me to do everything without question, without debate, without negotiation that's required to get well. And um, thanks. With that, I'll pass. Thank you so much, Melissa. Oh, thank you. Um, please note, this meeting is being recorded, and by speaking during this meeting, you are giving permission to have your voice on this recording. There is no sharing at this meeting. Instead, we ask questions of the speaker. Also, please remember that the opinions of the speaker are their own and do not reflect OA as a whole. The meeting is now open for questions. To do so, you may raise your hand, or if you do not wish your voice recorded, you may ask a question in chat, and it will be read by the moderator. Megan M? Hi, Megan M. Um, I'm listening and uh, driving at the same time, so I have my video off. But, um, Melissa, I have to tell you, that is – I've been in OA for um, nine months, and that was one of the best um, things I've ever just listened to you, you speaking, because you covered so much of this disease. Um, so I really, really, really appreciate your share. It's exactly what I needed to hear today. So thank you for that. And I'm just so grateful for this program and for all the people that put this workshop together um, today. I appreciate that. And um, maybe just a quick question to you is, I know everybody's food plan is different and everybody has different foods they're allergic to. Um, do, do you kind of follow like three meals a day and two optional snacks or um, do you just kind of work with a nutritionist on that or um, maybe just talk about that for a minute. I know it's not all about the food, but anyway, with that, I pass. Thanks again. 
Yeah, yeah, thanks, Megan. Yeah, so um, the specifics of someone's food plan is usually best worked out with a nutritionist, right? Um, and I could just speak from my own experience. Um, um, I have a very structured plan. I don't make decisions in the midst of the day about my food. I have, like, a real committed food plan. Um, and when I was – when I weighed more, I needed to eat more to to – because it's not a diet, right? I was, I was getting abstinent and looking towards, working towards and maintaining a healthy body weight. And actually, I used to have to eat a snack. I just physically, I needed it. I, I, when I was over 300 pounds, I needed it. Um, and it was within, it was within the confines of a committed food plan. As I've gotten older and uh, my metabolism, unfortunately, slows down when you reach Seemed like when I reached 50, it just like took this crazy halt. It just does. Um, and I weigh less. I need to actually, you need to eat less. When you weigh less, you actually need to eat less. I thought, I always thought I'd get more food back. That was always what I was told. I don't know, or somehow I believed it. And when you lost the weight, then you get to eat more again, but it doesn't work that way for me. So me personally, I eat three meals a day. I eat three um, healthy, right, abstinent meals a day. Um, thanks. Thank you. Tanya, um, you're up, and then after Tanya will be Jean. Hi. Um, Melissa, thank you uh, so much. And I think you're helping. I have a question. I, I think I'm beginning to understand how my thinking and understanding is is really often just to say a quick thing of an abstinence um, about, I don't know, a, a year and like four months or whatever. And some circumstances have occurred, and I understand they're not bringing up the obsession, but it's showing me where I think I've been using my will and not really, um, really accepting um, the allergy. And so this is my question. So I've always explained to myself I have bad hypoglycemia, right? And so I know my body reacts very differently to sugar that way. I also know once I pick up sugar – I can't stop, right? And so I feel like when it comes to that, and there's some other foods I've found that I have my it throw throw my blood out of whack, right? And I've had to get off in order to just you know to not activate a virus or something. So I think what I've been telling myself is I need to be in a way, and I I know you can hear the holes in this, but I just need help with this that I need to be in a way because I can't follow that and not eat those things. Um, without having the structure of OA. But then that's treating it like a diet. But then I'm like, wait, do I have two allergies to things like sugar and cheese, for example? One is that my, my body, you know, gets crazy with my blood sugar and the, it triggers the more, more, more once I ingest it. Is that it? I'm, I'm just, I need to, I need to kind of understand where I'm, I'm, I'm cause I, I, it's, I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried. I'm, I'm really got some crazy thinking going on and I, I need some help. So. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I don't know if it was my internet connection, but it was in and out a little bit. So I, I don't, I'm hoping that I, people are nodding. Yes. So it wasn't just me. Okay. All right. So it sounds like you're talking about maybe two issues. One of which is like uh, one that, and, and I would say for both of them, you need to speak with a nutritionist, right? You definitely do because hypoglycemia needs, you know, needs to be looked at, needs to have medical supervision. I'm not a doctor. I do know, though, you said something that made my ears perk up. Sugar is not my only allergic 
substance, by the way. Um, you mentioned my happens to be the one you, the other one, the other food you mentioned is mine too, right? That's one of mine too. I can't eat cheese, you know, and, and what happened, um, as I worked this beautiful program of recovery, that list got of my allergic foods actually got longer. Um, yeah, the path got really, it got pretty narrow. It got real narrow. Um, the beautiful thing is, I don't care. How's that? I don't care. I'm really good. I, I've learned, um, it seems to me that if there's a list of ingredients on the back of a food, it, it sometimes, more often than not, I'm allergic to it. Most of the things that I can eat without any allergic response have no ingredients on it. They just are. They're like basic. And unfortunately, I can't even say that because there are even some foods that come with. But what happens is um, I don't want to set off the allergy anymore. I'm not interested. I'm like, um, food does not, I don't have that passionate pull towards food. It doesn't, that is a power of, of, of recovery. That is a power of God. That is God doing for me, which I cannot do for myself. I had a love affair with food my entire life and I don't love food anymore. Not that way. It tastes good, but I'm not in love with it. I don't feel passionate about my food. Um, but I would suggest you, you speak to a nutritionist. Okay. Thank you, Jane. Hi, Melissa. Hi, everyone. Jane, recovering in this program. Oh, my gosh, what a gift. A fellow actually sent me a recording you had did uh, done before, and I listened to it before this meeting, and ironically, I was like, I need to speak with her, and then I tune in, and, and you're the leader here. So, pure God, uh, thank you for your amazing lead. Um, I'm very much in step one, so I feel a little bit uh, embarrassed to ask this because I've been in the rooms for seven years, but uh, really deep on in my knees right now on step one, I'm having a really hard time letting go of coffee and gum. And um, it's just, I've never had to look at these items before, and I almost want to cry because it's so embarrassing, and it's like, really? Um but, you know, I have almost a month of three meals, like sticking to my food plan and like abstaining from those other alcoholic foods. But I just am claw marking the coffee and the gum. And um, because I think I'm hearing people say you need to put it down and uh, or that it's worked for them. So my disease is saying like, well, you're not 100 percent recovered unless you're doing it perfectly. Um, and that's what I'm Maybe maybe that's higher power actually whispering to me, <laughs> not my disease. So I'm just wondering because you mentioned the enamel and stuff. Um, what like how? What would you say to a sponsee who's just like uh, holding on by the threads, knowing something has to go, but is just completely, uh, you know, it's embarrassing to say gum and coffee when I it used to be cupcakes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that, and I think. Um, you know, first it's like we have to concede to our innermost selves what it is that you're allergic to. And, um, yeah, I know for me it, it was like I had to give up gum. You know, and but the truth is nobody told me I had to give it up. And, and that's where I really, as a sponsor, I don't tell people what they can and cannot eat, but I ask them to really, you sit quiet, you get honest, you know. Um, I mean, I, I, I actually do drink coffee. 
I'm not going to, I'm not going to like stand up and profess to be something I'm not. So I do drink coffee. Um, and, um, it hasn't seemed to, you know, I have it, I have it in the morning. I drink tea later on in the day. Um, um, that's my own personal thing. Right. But, um, but if I, and yet there were other things that I knew I had to let go of because I knew I could just feel it. So if you know, if it's, if it's rolling around and taking up space in your brain and you keep coming up against it and you keep coming up against it, like for the longest time I was like, please, please don't make it be cheese. Like I was like, please, I just, I just want to be able to eat that. And I kept trying it and it was, and it was painful to manage it. It was actually more painful to manage. It was harder for me to put it on the scale. You know, it was like, oh, you know, and, and what was a good determination for me that always, I, I always ask people to kind of use this strategy um, is look up the portion size, look up the serving size of it. What do they say is a normal serving size? If you can measure that out, and it looks appropriate, and you have no emotional response, it's probably okay for you, right? If you are saying, as soon as you put it in front of you, measured out, no way, no way, right? You know, um, no, no, then it's probably alcoholic. And that's really, that's what happened for me with the cheese was I didn't want to have an ounce. You know, I didn't want to have it. I wanted I wanted four ounces of it. I wanted it as a whole protein. I wanted four ounces of it. And then I didn't just want four ounces of it for one meal. I wanted it every meal, four ounces of it. You know, I wanted to figure out, I, some meals I was like, well, it's going to be my fat. Some meals it was going to be my protein. Some meals it's going to be my protein and my fat. And maybe if I don't have a fruit, that'll be, that's when I know. Like, so that's like a very, that's like an internal kind of thing, you know, more than those are the questions you have to ask yourself. And if, and if that is like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, then, then, then we have no choice, right? Cause it's, um, powerless to the allergy, powerless to the allergy. An entire abstinence is the only, you know, the only relief we have to suggest. Hopefully someone answers that in my house. <laughs> I don't know if you hear that ringing. They might not. Nope, they did. It was good. Okay. Anybody else have a question for Melissa about powerlessness, unmanageability, step one? Yes, I have a question. Go ahead, Beverly. Um, Melissa, how do you, I think I've heard you before talk about this, but about managing your time, especially around family. Um, I'm the empty nester except my grandkids. It's just me and my husband. But um, how do you manage time um, with program, working? Um, and I know you have teenagers. Um, and so that's that's coming up to be a concern for me because I also work. And I haven't been able to go to meetings. And I really don't like – I mean, it's okay to listen to recordings, but I like to show up. Um and 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 share and stuff. So how do you manage that, especially when you're working? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I probably um I probably would say my family will tell you. I don't. <laughs> they probably will say, no, you're always on you're always on your meetings, you're always kind of doing that thing. They might. Until they're not interested in being with me and then they're like, Don't you have a meeting to go to? You know, because I have teenagers. So they want me only when they want me is pretty much it. And, um, um, you know, I try, there are certain times of the day I don't answer the phone because I'm having dinner with my family, right? There are, if I'm, if I'm like doing something with my kids, um, oh, I'm not, I might, like if someone calls, I might just text them back, like I can't talk right now I'm with, you know, I'm with my son or I'm with my daughter, um, I try to give them my best when I'm with them, but I also know that my, you know, my disease of compulsive overeating robbed all of my time, and um, it never, I never said, oh, I should be spending time with my kids right now when I was, like, in the car in a parking lot eating in the dark, right? Um, it never said like, oh, you should go downstairs and hang out with your family when I was like hiding food in my bedroom eating, you know, with the door locked. Um, and, um, you know, what happened for me also, Beverly, is, um, I, my, the things that I, you know, we're told a personality change, right? So part of my personality changing has been the things that I enjoy doing are different today um I don't watch tv I really I don't like it I don't have the I don't have the doesn't grab me it doesn't interest me it bore I find it boring I can't really sit still um I would prefer to be <laughs> reading I would prefer to be writing working with sponsees speaking to fellows rather than sitting and watching tv and my my family does they like to watch tv a lot um and so um, and they watch a lot of violent stuff, which I hate violence. But if if my husband says, um, there's a really good comedy on, I think you'll like it. That's my cue that um, I'm not going to take a call right now and I'm going to sit and watch. That's like an invitation. Um, or he says, like, oh, there's this really, like, you'll like it. It's one of those touchy-feely kind of sappy emotional things you're gonna like it melissa you know i think you'll you know you want to watch that 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 too then i'm more apt to um yeah i don't know i hope that helps beverly hi am i allowed to ask a question i'm suzanne and this is my first oa meeting so i don't know how it works um but it's good to be here. I am really new to this program. I'm two weeks into the program. I have got a sponsor and I am working the steps. I'm actually an alcoholic in recovery. Um, so I'm two and a half years sober. So I, I know this, the big book very well. And um, I never used to have a problem with food. Um, my problem was alcohol until I got pregnant. And when I couldn't drink... I ate and then afterwards, after my daughter was born, I continued, I went back to drinking and then I continued to eat as well. Didn't, I, I kept trying to do diets and things like that and they didn't work. 
and then when I my alcoholism reached its peak and I stopped drinking um one of the things that I turned to was um food specifically sugar um and it's only been now two and a half years later that I've realized that this is more than me just I just thought I was being greedy I just thought I loved food I just thought you know I had no willpower until one night I was eating a box an ice lolly and I I don't know if you're allowed to speak about food here I don't want to trigger anybody I don't know if that's a thing sorry I don't know what I'm doing but and I and I couldn't stop eating them and I ate two boxes my lips were numb um the next morning I woke up there was um juice from the ice lollies on the bed and it was like you know the last time that happened to me was when I was drinking alcohol and I'd wake up with red wine and I realized this has got to be more this has got to be something more and I shared about it in, in AA actually and somebody reached out to me and suggested uh, this program and um, so yeah so hence me being here and I have got a really good sponsor I, I know that I'm completely powerless over certain foods. Um, sorry, Suzanne, just know. in the interest of oh. time, uh, do you have any, do you have a question for Melissa? C? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, my question is, at the moment, I, I've got my abstinent foods, which is um, sugar, flour, wheat, gluten. They're the things that cause me to binge But I've just heard people talking about um, sugar, uh, sorry, gum and coffee. It's... It, Maybe this is something I need to speak to my sponsor, but I had like an options hot chocolate tonight, which is kind of like sweetener, but that hasn't set off any binge. Is it? Is it like a real personal? Because drinking's black and white, but this seems a bit more grey, grey areas. Yeah, yeah. So I would say, Suzanne, welcome, welcome to Overeaters Anonymous. Um, and I'm happy that you're here. Keep keep coming and keep listening. Keep coming and keep listening. Listen with an open mind, just like you had to do with with alcohol. Um, and and this this probably does sound more like more of a of a of a of like something to discuss with your sponsor. That you should really go through it with your sponsor because you'll get all sorts of conflicting information regard you know depending on who you ask. But if you're working with someone, work with that person. Follow their, follow their guidance. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you, Suzanne. Welcome. Is there anybody else? Hi, I have a question. Uh, Martha, uh, recovered compulsive overeater, bulimic. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much, Hi. Melissa. This is, I really, really, my mind is overflowing. Um, and, I feel like I've heard you talk, I heard your special edition on this topic, which is recorded, everybody, if you want to listen to it, but it feels really a, a new level of understanding this time. I was wondering if you can talk a bit about um, food behaviors that you had to put down and how, if that was sort of a similar parallel to getting abstinent from allergic foods, because I feel like I have some behaviors that trigger like the allergy in a different way that and and I've been really you know have over a hundred days without any of my alcoholic foods, but some of the behaviors I really struggle with um so yeah, thank you, yes, yes, definitely. Hi, Martha. I'm happy you're here um, 
And, uh, yes, definitely behaviors. So my, um, um, eating in ways for me that are um, spontaneous, even if they're alcoholic foods is, um, an alcoholic behavior. I have to eat, um, planned. Um, I need to eat meal time. I need to eat at meal time. You know, I could, in an effort to manage and control, I would manipulate times that I ate. So I would l- wait to eat as late as possible so that breakfast is almost lunchtime. And then I combine the meal, right? And that's a binge. That's overeating because I want to volume up. I would do that. Those were some of like, those are the things I can't do. Um, you know, eating, um, I don't, I don't eat, I don't eat standing up. I don't eat walking around. I don't eat in front of the TV. I don't watch TV anymore anyway, but if I did, I'm not eating in front of the TV. I try as much as possible. If I'm doing work, like, like I have work for my job, not to eat and work, not to, to eat my meals. I want to say like a lady, my meals like a person, sit down at the table. Um, I actually found um, that, um, oh, eating off of people's plates, can't do that. Um, I I have to weigh and measure my food. Um, so if I eat things that are more or less, um, that's, that's an alcoholic behavior. Cause whenever I eat less in my mind, I've got a running tally of what I'm owed and I'm going to take it when I want it. So I really have to surrender and eat what it, whether I'm hungry or not too bad. You know, sometimes I, I would look at like the, the portion of the vegetables and be like, that is too much. I'm so full. And, you know, and then what it, what it would open up my mind for later is that, well, I can have more fat because I didn't have the three carrots that were left on my plate. Like that's insane. I have, I really have to eat what it says I'm going to eat, um, what I say I'm going to eat and what I do, um, you know, in the morning after I do my prayer and meditation, um, because I'm looking to invite God in as much as I can because I'm powerless, so I need higher power to direct me in my food. That's when I write down my food for the day. I send it off to my sponsor. That is what I eat. I do not change what I'm going to eat unless it's necessity, necessity, not by choice. Um, cause those are alcoholic food behaviors for me too. Thinking too much, you know, um, looking at recipes. I don't search recipes. If I'm on Facebook, um, and I start scrolling to try to find how to make something exciting out of my abstinent food, um, that's, that's an alcoholic behavior for me. Um, and, and other, everybody's different. But I don't make things out of my abstinent food. I just eat it. Um, you know, I have a lot of behaviors that I have to be on the watch for. I eat my meal in a specific seat in my kitchen. And for me, it's um, it's one of the most, like, spiritual practices I can do because um, 
I didn't fit in that chair in my own kitchen for years. It was a chair within arms, and I didn't fit in my armchairs in my own kitchen. So I like to sit in that chair. I like to feel the boundaries of of the arms, and that's that to me is the boundaries of my higher power too, that it's loving and it's comforting and it's there for me to lean on. Um, I also pray before I eat. I say a prayer. I ask God to please allow the food that I'm about to eat to nourish my body and not my disease. Um, and that really helps me. Um, yeah. Hope that's helpful. Thank you. That's really helpful. I really like that. Anyone else with a question for Melissa C? Can I jump in with a question? Hi. Amy B., very grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you, Lori. Thank you, everyone, for showing up today for this. Um, You closed with a pretty powerful statement, which is, in order to seek God with the intensity that is required, I must be convinced that I can't manage my life, that I'm powerful, my life is unmanaged. My question refers to seeking God with the intensity that is required. A little bit of a devil's advocate question, but... I really would like to hear your thoughts on this. I'm an addict. When I seek God with intensity, it's with intensity. And it's been wonderful. Is there any intensity that is too intense as an addict, even when it's seeking God? That's my question. Hmm. i got to think about that, Amy. I would probably say... No, I probably would say no. I think um because when I'm really seeking God, I'm not seeking I'm not seeking strategies as much as truly seeking. You know, what it is from God that I need is I need a relationship, right? So I'm looking I'm looking to form a bond, a loving relationship and a bond that it's not it's not gymnastics. It's not, you know, I, I think sometimes what happens is and you're sort of making me think about something. When people, you know, they're like, they start thinking about their practices as God, right? And I, and I've done this at one time. Like there was a time we, I think it was a couple of years ago, my family wanted to get out the door because it was a holiday weekend and we wanted to go to a specific beach. And we knew that we had to get there by a certain time because the lot would fill and we would not be able to get there. And friends of ours were meeting us there. And I had, I had this whole prayer and meditation practice. And there were like 10 things on my list. It was, it was like I was worshiping the practice not the power that I was seeking to remain, get close to. And how do I know that it's, that I, that I worship the practice is because my focus was on the practice and not on the connection. And I don't find anything out um, without some pain. So of course, you know, what I did was I made my family so late um, That we didn't get to go. Like, we got there. We drove all the way there, and we couldn't get in. And friends of ours were meeting us for the day. They were all in there. 
and we weren't, and my kids were pissed. Everybody was angry at me. Well, no, that didn't feel very spiritual. That's certainly like I was, I was seeking the seek and not what it was that I was seeking. And, you know, God is gentle. That's my experience. My loving creator is gentle. And when I say like, I seek with intensity, you know, I, I'm talking initially working the steps with intensity, right? That this is now, I'm not going to do this in my spare time, working my steps in my spare time. Um, and I also, I say my prayer practice is pretty, it's pretty, you know, I'm pretty serious about it too. I'm pretty earnest about it too. Um, but it's not, you know, so I, I'm not I'm not necessarily married to a specific practice. I have to be open to it. I hope that helps. It definitely does. Thank you so much. I'm actually going to read a question that came in in chat. Um, uh, somebody yeah. has requested that you just speak on um, a higher power um, uh, to describe your personal higher power, how you connect with your higher power. Okay. Oh, I love that. So I say, I mean, and that's a whole topic. That could be like a whole other topic about my connection with God. Um, and that's, um, strengthening my faith. Um, right. Um, but my personal relationship is, um, indescribably wonderful that grows over time that evolves, that um, defies logic, reasoning. Um, I don't have to understand to rely on it. It changes, it evolves, it grows, it morphs. It's a shape changer. It's a shape shifter for whatever I need it to be. And, you know, um, and my specific relationship with my higher power, um, I like to think about it as like my best friend, my closest companion, the one that wants the ultimate good for me, um, that's got my back, that sits beside me. And when things are really rough, um, sometimes it's just like I think about like when things are really hard for me, I think about my higher power is like, you know, that really good friend that sits next to you and um gives you like that little kick under the table when someone says something that like is upsetting or annoying and doesn't necessarily have to do anything other than just show that they're there. Sometimes that's what my higher power is. Like it's just that really good loving friend that just always, always has my ultimate best interest at heart. And, um, and it's always loving and gentle. It, for me, it, if, if it's not, it's not God. If it's cool and it's hurtful, it's probably, and I think about it like this, um, I, I know what my higher power is and I've lived with my lowest weakness, right? And then when it's not feeling good, when it's not loving, gentle, and kind, it's, it's springing forth from my lowest weakness. It's from the lowest piece of me. So thanks.
Anybody else with a question? I'm just going to jump in to answer Megan who asked about um, info available on recordings. I'm going to put a link in the chat with the link to the recordings from this podcast series where this recording will be posted as well. And um, uh, anybody else that has links to uh, chat, uh, feel free to put them in the chat as well. Thank you. I'm going to jump in with a question then, Melissa. <laughs> no worries. Um, so, Melissa, um, you know, powerlessness and surrender go hand in hand. Um, and yet sometimes I feel like they might mean something different, you know. And so I was just wondering if maybe you can just uh, talk a little bit about, you know, when you're feeling powerless and when you're feeling uh, surrendered. I think um, I surrender because I'm powerless. I think I think powerless for me comes first. The knowledge of my powerlessness always comes before the surrender. Um, and and I learned best that I'm powerless when I try to exert power, and I feel like I have none. Right. So most of us don't come in here uh, like they say, we don't come in here on a winning streak. Right. We always come in. Um, I think it was Harlan said I might have been him and it grabbed me that he thinks the, the rooms of um, overeaters and Amish should be, you know, like those um, those. I think they're like the Dutch doors that are like split in half and that to get in here, the top. Um, no. Yeah, the top part should be closed and the bottom open. And that's pretty much how most of us come in, like on on our knees, uh, just about, you know. Yeah, so I didn't surrender until I learned over and over and over again, I don't have power. I don't have the power. I can't do it. Okay. You know, it seems almost like, yeah, okay, surrender. Yeah, of course. What else, what else are you going to do? You know, when you're out of options, I think that for me is, is where the surrender occurs. I don't know anybody that surrenders when they think they have power. Why would you surrender? Right? Thank you. There's a question here in chat that says, uh, how did Melissa start to build her relationship with her HP? Um, necessity, <laughs> necessity, um, you know, um, yeah, it came in, um, I'm going to sound like really trivial, step by step. It really did. It came in step by step. I, I thought, you know, it, and, um, and if you're looking to, um, really understand it, read the spiritual experience in the back of the appendix because um, it was a slow awakening that happened over time. And most, I shouldn't say most, many people think erroneously, myself included, that first I was going to have an awareness of God. I was going to get this thing of a higher power. And then I was going to get supplied with the desire and will to do all the things that came after, 
right? So um, I thought first you get the spiritual awakening, and then you happily follow the steps because you've got the spiritual thing. So so many people say, well, yeah, I can't do this because I'm struggling with God. No, that's why we do it. But because we're struggling with God. So how did I form my own relationship with the higher power? Um, I did it in each step. And so what happens is at the end, it's a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. It's it, it, spiritual. The spiritual awakening happens as a result of the steps. And that's really what happened with me, with building my own relationship with God. It started um, with my surrender with admission of powerlessness. Um, and, um, and then I had, um, honesty because we, we do it with honesty, open mindedness and willingness. And willingness is like the, in, is indispensable. We need to be willing. That's how, that's how I formed a relationship with my higher power. Um, and, and what that means is I was extraordinarily desperate. Right. Powerless. I was desperate. And yet I had this little glimmer of hope. That's what made me willing is that I was so desperate, but I had a little bit of hope that something was going to change. Um, and so I started taking action. And that's and the amazing thing is, is that if you are willing, like. God will reveal himself to you over time. It happens. It just does. Um, yeah, thanks. Thank you so much. Anybody else with questions for Melissa? Um, I have a, a question asked privately in chat. When a sponsee is not clear that they are truly powerless, what do you suggest to help them decide? Um, well, the book says, <laughs> the book is pretty clear. Try it. Try some controlled eating. <laughs> Try to eat and stop the broccoli. Try it more than once. I don't think it's the job of a sponsor or any fellow, no human being can convince someone that they're powerless. That is, unfortunately, that is, that is a very personal, solitary experience. It really is. Um, most of us don't find out we're powerless, um, from someone else telling us that we're, in fact, that's the worst place. That's fraught the emotional appeal. Someone telling me that I'm powerless. I had to know. I was powerless. Um, so the best thing that you can do for a sponsee who is um, questioning whether they're powerless is probably um, to be a friend, to be a fellow, to offer experience, strength, and hope. But there's no sponsorship work that needs to be done without admission of powerless. That's step one. You can't take step one for another human being. You can't. It's, um, but I don't say that means you like ignore them. You can absolutely be a friend, a fellow. Um, you can encourage them to go to meetings. You can, um, offer them friendship, fellowship, and support. 
but you can't convince someone else that they're powerless. That, that, um, and I wouldn't sponsor, I actually would not sponsor someone, um, who, who wasn't, um, certain about that. That's one of the first questions I ask someone. Like, are you, like, what do you do? Like, why do you want, why do you want to, why do you want to do this? What's going on? Um, and, and yeah, if someone, there's nothing you can do with them. There's nothing you can do with them to, to sponsor. So, and actually they say that's really the job of the food, right? The food does the convincing. Yeah. Thanks. Cora, you have a question? I do. Um, this is for a recovered compulsive eater. Melissa, thank you so much. This is just so valuable, and I am excited that it's recorded so that I can share it with others. It just really gives a, a great beginning. But I recently uh, was able to hear some things uh, that you were talking about in another um, position, and you stated, you said, I had to seek and chase recovery more than I sought and chased food. And um, so could you just, just speak a little bit about the chasing of the recovery? Thank you. Yeah, so I had to, so, I mean, like, one of the earliest things I used to say um, was I had this local meeting. It was Saturday mornings, and um, and I would say, um, well, my husband has to mow the lawn at that time. And I had, like, little kids, right? And, um, you know, he's got a lot of yard work to do. I'm not going to be able to make it to the meeting. And, um, but really, like, that, I wasn't chasing my recovery the way I was chasing food because my husband having worked through around the house never got in the way of me eating. You know, it never got me out there helping him, right? Never, like, so... Um, it just started that basic. It started with me like advocating for myself and saying, you know what, babe, I'm going to be gone from this time to this time. And, um, as soon as I come back, you want, you've stuffed around the house you want to do, you know, I got it. Um, it, like that. It was also things like honoring and respecting my, um, my food plan, right? Like I had to, it meant I had to go, food shopping regularly. <laughs> I had to prepare, like I had to, you know, I work full time. So it would meant like I had to do some food prep on Sunday. I had to like get out my little bags of veggies and, and wait and portioned out things and get it set to go. Some of that. It also meant like setting up time to do my step work. Like I had to, um, I used to say like, I can't get up that early in the morning when I wanted to be recovered I got up anytime I just I was like yeah I got to get up and I got to do work before I get get up with the kids and do work and live you know so it's it's some of the basic ways like that it meant um you know here's another one right when I was when I was working on my fourth step and this is something like I would say to someone I'm sponsoring um you've got like a week to get it done, right? Like I usually give people like a, like a deadline. Um, you got a week to 10 days to get this thing done. Um, no, you're not going to go out with your, like, uh, no. So you were supposed to go out like shopping with your girlfriends and you can't do it. Or like, this has to be job number one, number one, intense, 
like intensity, um, focus. It's, and I think about it like this. If, if what you have is fatal and, and that's what I know for me, what I have is fatal and progressive, fatal and progressive. I think about it like stage four cancer, right? If I had stage four cancer and the doctor said to me, um, we're going to start chemo next week or we're starting chemo tomorrow. I wouldn't say, oh, I'm supposed to go to my sister's for a, for a party for like, I just, there would have been nothing that would have gotten in the way between me doing what I needed to do to get well. And that really is how it's been for me and my recovery. Nothing, you know, this, and, and so it goes back to that of, the question before, what if someone doesn't think they're powerless? I'm not the person to help them. And I would say that it's unkind, actually, to string someone along, letting them believe that this isn't a serious problem, you know, that, that well, you can do it when you feel like it. it it's you'll do it gently. Be gentle about it. No, that's not my experience with this. This disease is not gentle. And, and yeah, it requires intense, intensive work intensive work um but eating compulsively does too it demands everything right that rapacious creditor we talked about bleeds us dry bled me dry so yeah thanks we do have time for um, probably a couple more questions. Um, Melissa, would you be willing to answer things maybe off of step one also? Sure, of course. So opening it up, the topic, if anybody has a question for Melissa, you can either put it in chat or um, unmute and ask it. Thank you. Don't be shy. It's okay. She's really nice. She won't bite. You can ask anything. There's like 10 minutes left. Ask whatever you want. Anything? Well, about OA. Yeah, but I know. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Don't ask me about your, like, mortgage or your taxes because I won't be able to help you. <laughs> can you help me eat, can you help me eat the elephant in the room? Um, I wanted to ask about, um, like, medical conditions. Um, if you had a sponsee that had a medical condition that is probably centered around what they eat, what kind of um, guidance um, would you give them? Because, like, some foods trigger diseases, not necessarily an allergy, but it may make your numbers go up or down or cause your stomach to hurt and things like that. So how do you work with people that have don't let have medical conditions? So as long, long as they're um I wouldn't imagine that any medical condition would require somebody to eat foods that they're allergic to. 
as far as an addiction. I've yet, I've really yet to meet someone who is demanded by, you know, told by their doctor, you absolutely have to eat sugar. Like I, and I'm just throwing sugar out there. Um, but I also, I believe I never go against what a doctor says. Never. I am not a doctor. So, and I've heard some things that some people say that definitely makes me um, feel very uncomfortable. Like I've heard people say that there's a medication that they're on and they look at the ingredients and it has something and therefore they're going to go off of it. And I would say, wait a second, you can't do that without discussing it with your doctor. So that's one thing. But if someone has certain foods that, um, that they are not, that they shouldn't eat because it's medically harmful to them, Beverly, is that what it is? It's but more it's so not how do you spon- how do you sponsor them because they may need a little more um guidance or a lack of a better word um instruction i mean I know they have a they have a nutritionist, but the nutritionist doesn't really understand o a yeah yeah, so I would work with the person I would look at it together and see if it's within you know as long as it's i I would never go against what the doctor said. But um, but we can sort of make some good suggestions along the way. I was, you know, like I know sometimes people are going for like a medical procedure, right? And they might need to like um, have only fluids for for a little bit before the procedure. And sometimes the doctor says, you know, I want you to have like Gatorade or something of that sort. And that might be something that we would talk about. And I would suggest to them reach back out to your doctor ask what other options are available. Um, and, and, but an abstinent food plan should, should be healthy, should be, you know, supporting somebody's good health. Um, you know, I know for myself, like salt is not an allergic food for me, but I have high blood pressure. So I have to, I have to limit my sodium intake. Um, and I think because I'm such a good, like, compulsive overeater who loves food plans and like and surrendering and and living that way I actually went back to the doctor and he said my sodium was too low I don't know what that means now but um I thought oh my gosh well, like I guess I did a really good job limiting my sodium but apparently you can do that too so yeah so I listen to what my doctor says and I adjust according to what my doctor says. But let me let me be a little more specific. Um, yeah. Um, because I know this is a private room, you know. And but if you diabetic, and you yep. have you have a low, a, I mean a low like sixty. Sixty is low. Seventy is normal, but sixty is low. Seventy, you need to go eat. Sixty, you need to hurry up and go eat. Mm-hmm. And so, how do you um? How do you because a lot of times the doctors they just want to keep you on the medication. They's like, well, just keep your keep taking your med. So you end up maybe binging because mm-hmm. of the lows you having. And yeah. so when you're working with someone and they trying to call you and say, Melissa, I- I'm having a low. I need to eat something. So do you work that kind of stuff out in the beginning of your 
conversation with them and sponsoring them that this is what happens when my when I get to 70 I know I need to prepare myself to go eat something if I'm at 60 I'm sweating I'm in panic mode I'm about to I'm not going to pass out but I'm feeling like I'm going to pass out so do you clarify all that up front when you start sponsoring someone so I would absolutely if we're talking about a diabetic they absolutely have to have a nutritionist 100%, somebody that is working out all the details with them. Mm -hmm. And I know that um, I had, when my son was, when I was pregnant with my son, I had gestational diabetes. And I was not, I was not um, abstinent at that point in my life. But um, that particular, I was, I was able to, to eat in agreement with that plan, I guess, because my motivation was strong enough. Um, I remember that I had to eat small meals throughout the day. Like I could not go long periods of time. And so if I were a compulsive overeater working a program of recovery, being abstinent following a food plan like that, that would mean that I would have to have small meals abstinently throughout the day. My, my, what that person eats and their food plan in mind today certainly isn't going to look the same. And, and yes, Beverly, if someone is like about to go into diabetic shock, right? No, they 100% have to eat. Like I would never tell somebody, well, just, you know, suck it up and wait it out. Like that would be criminal. That would be criminal. But um, diabetics, it's crucial that they have a good nutritionist, um, you know. And, and most, you know, diabetic nutritionists are not recommending, you know, sugar like that, processed, you know, sugar like that, because it, it wrecks havoc on their blood sugar. It actually does worse. It sends them all over the place. It's it's an emergency situation, but the goal is to avoid emergencies. It's to to have it so that it's managed. But I, I would yeah, I would say they gotta get to a nutritionist for sure. And then you would work with them. Of course you'd work with them, help them out. Yeah. Okay, we have a quick question in chat, and then we have uh, Katie with her hand raised. So first, the chat question, which is, how often do you speak with your own sponsor? Um, not every day anymore. We go through periods, um, my sponsor and myself. I have, but I have a lot of, I never go a day without speaking to other felt, I mean, I speak to people all the time, but my, my specific sponsor, you know, there were periods of time when, when we would talk every day and, um, depending on what's going on now, it's probably a couple of times a week. Um, but I sent her daily work every day still, still, I still, um, she gets my nightly review. I sent her, I do some morning work. I sent her my food, my writing. Um, yeah. Thank you. And Katie, with your hand raised, would you like to ask your question? Hi. Thanks a lot. Melissa, you're amazing. I, I learn so much every time you talk. Thank you so much. Uh, my question was, you mentioned um, my disease loves ambiguity. And... I seem to live in that state. Uh, I spent last year losing 56 pounds and this year putting it all back on. And that's been a pattern for many years. 
And so one thing that I had remembered learning from another food addiction program was that if you that your body knows. Your body knows when it's getting something that will trigger it. So like, for example, uh, maybe the coffee I'm drinking, I only need to have one cup in the morning, but that might be causing me to crave sugar in the afternoon. I don't know if that's right or not. But So what I did was I went to that website and pulled up their list of forbidden foods or whatever you want to call them, trigger foods, and I noticed that a lot of the foods that I eat in my normal diet that I didn't think of as triggers were on that list, just certain fruits, you know, certain, um, you know, like flavorings, like vanilla, for example, just a lot of things that I have been using, and I just, I'm really not sure now, so what, what I did was I decided, well, I'm going to start working on taking all of those things out of my plan and making it more simple. And my uh, sponsor, who I highly respect, who's got over 25 years of abstinence, said that I was becoming rigid in my thinking. And you had mentioned that. So I'm just curious what your take is on that. And I'll mute because I have dogs here. And they're barking a lot lately. Um, You know, it's sometimes it's hard to answer this because I think – Everybody's uh, everybody's alcoholic foods are different. And sometimes I think what – this is a spiritual malady. And sometimes I think it's more, did you fail to enlarge and perfect your spiritual life? Was that what it was? No, that wasn't. Or was it? I did the 12 steps over and over and over with uh, uh, about – several different sponsors. I did it the quick way, the slow way, uh, this person's way, that person's way, Lori's way, Herb Kay's way. I've, it's not that I don't love God and seek him every day. That's not it. I know that there are physical triggers that I, I just don't know what they are. Yeah. But do well, I have to sounds- give up everything that I'm eating, bananas and grapes or whatever? And I mean, I don't know. I don't know that that if you don't believe that it's a if you don't believe that it's that it's a problem with your spiritual you know situation if you feel um, if you feel connected to this power this and that you're living in I know you said you did the steps right you've done the steps. Um, it's the, I think sometimes it's also the, um, applying these principles in all our affairs, which sometimes people do the steps and think it's one and done. And I don't know whether that's your case at all. Are you living in 10, 11, and 12? Were you like really doing, so you're saying, yeah, so it probably is a food, then it might be coming from the allergy. Maybe, maybe it is. Um, I don't know. You know, I would say, Sit quiet in prayer and meditation with your higher power, right? Just like you've prayed for everything. Ask, ask God. How do you feel when you eat some of those things? Do you feel comfortable, calm, or does it like I'll, t- I'll tell you for for me one thing for example, right? When I thought it was too crazy for me to look at like all the ingredients on labels, one of the things I noticed was 
why is it that when we get a rotisserie chicken from the store, it's hard for me to eat it in a measured portion? I could just feel it. I wanted to pick at it. I wanted to eat it outside of my measured piece. I was like almost ready to lick the plate. There was a different experience that I had with chicken than I had it when I cooked it on my own. And and I knew that inside. And so I was, I looked at the label. Sure enough, it was there. It was there for me, you know, um, that's it. That's that's it. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Melissa. In closing, as OA's responsibility pledge states, always to extend the hand and heart of OA to all who share my compulsion. For this, I am responsible. Thank you all so much for joining us here today. After a moment of silence, please join us in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. And the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. I will.